It was so fun to hear bells again. And wasn't it nice to hear the bells again? Oh, that was awesome. That was awesome. Amen. It was awesome. Turn in your Bible to uh, Mark chapter 12. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be reading verses 28 to 34. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 or 28 to 34. Listen to the word of the Lord. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. Okay, we got to stop right there. Because as readers of the text, we're coming in the middle of a story and we need to ask ourselves exactly, who is this them? Who are these others that we're, we're talking about? Now, if you remember, um, last week we found Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus down in Jericho. And since that time in Mark's story, Jesus and the disciples have climbed up an 18-mile, hot, dusty, rocky road to Jerusalem up through the mountains. And it's at the beginning of Passover, and um, the place was teeming with people. And we find Jesus in the temple, in the temple courts. And we find that Jesus is being confronted by all types of people, from um, the entrenched religious and political establishment beginning to argue with him. They were picking a fight. First, it was the Pharisees and the Herodians uh, who were trying to get Jesus to trip up with ter in terms of who his loyalty, where did his loyalty really lie? Was it with Caesar or was it with God? Hmm? Come on, Jesus, prove it. Then there was a group called the Sadducees who don't believe in life after death. And they were pushing Jesus and began nitinoiding him on issues of the resurrection. And they came up with one of those arguments like how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. They said, okay, Jesus, so uh, Bob is married. Bob dies. Um, the wife gets married to Bob's brother. He dies. The wife gets married to the third brother. He dies, the wives get married, to, it goes through seven brothers, and finally they say, well, Jesus, whose wife is she at the resurrection? I'm like, really? Is that the best you got? And then we're moving into our story today. The crowds are pushing in on Jesus. They, they are being blown away by this upstart rabbi and the way he is handling and taking on the religious and cultural elite of the day. It's at this point, in this carnival atmosphere, a scribe who is a, a Jewish, for example, a Jewish PhD. He was a theologian, wasn't a PhD in those days, but he was, he was a scholar. He knew the law, could quote the law, could interpret the law. The scribes are the ones that taught in the synagogue. But unlike the Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees, the scribe comes and encounters Jesus arguing with this group. And his question seems earnest. Let's pick back up. And seeing that Jesus answered 
the Pharisees, Herodians, and Sadducees so well, the scribe asked Jesus, which commandment is the first of all? And Jesus answered, the first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. See, he was quoting the Deuteronomy text Nick read. But the second is this, Jesus said, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there Jesus is quoting from the Levitical book, uh, Leviticus chapter 18, and a couple of verses there about loving aliens in your midst and loving your neighbor in your midst. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these, Jesus said. And the scribe said to Jesus, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and besides him there is no other. And to love him with all our heart and with all our understanding, with all our strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, this is much more important than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that the scribe answered wisely, Jesus said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to see how old some of y'all are. Back in 1986, Ike and Tina Turner released a song, What's Love Got to Do With It? That's where I get my sermon title this morning. What's Love Got to Do With It? You remember the refrain from that song? Now, I need you to help me. I, I, we're gonna, I'm going to sing this to you, but I need some help. Just got to get a beat. I got to get, come on, choir, help me out, get a beat. A little, little bit faster. There you go. Not that fast. Slow it back. What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? What love's got to do with it, what to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? Yeah. Tina, I hate to disagree with you on three fronts. First, love is not a second-tier emotion. Our scripture reminds us that it is top-tier. The first tier. Secondly, love is so much more than just of emotion. It describes how we feel, but love is more than that. It's better understood as a verb. A verb. In both Hebrew and in Greek texts, love is a verb. It is an action word. It is not a noun. And then third, love does indeed, love does indeed break hearts. And it's the broken heart that is the engine of propelling love outward. 
So I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking together at the fact that love is a verb and that our breaking hearts are the engines to move love into action. Love is a verb. Action word. Love is a concept, is a noun. Love is. As a concept, as a noun, love is not a bad thing at all. It's pleasant to think about. It's very pleasant to write about, expressed through words. And yet love as a concept, as a noun, is impotent if it does not do something. Love moves from a noun, a concept, when love is expressed in action. You know, I can tell you, I love you. How many girls in high school heard me say that? I love you. But it's only when I actually show you in tangible ways that I love you does love become real and true. I can say, I love my neighbor. But it's only when I demonstrate that love to neighbor, to the other, to the one whom I may not even like very much, that love becomes tangible and true. I can say, I love the least of these. I love the least of these. Those who are in prison. Those who are hungry. Those who have no clothes. I love them. But it's only when I empty my pockets as I walk into the jail's front door, hear the bars shut behind me, it's when I see the face of a child cry in joy because their parents is, are incarcerated, but our angel tree ministry is getting them Christmas. Or when we become a pen pal to someone in jail, friends, only then does love become enfleshed. Our love for the hungry is shown in our personal attempt to curb food waste and seek out ways to put food in the mouths of the hungry around our community. Our love for those who are naked means working against the structures and systems that exploit child labor in denying a living wage to people. Years ago, I heard the story about a little girl who was beginning to sleep on her own. She was a big girl now. And she was going to sleep in her own bed, in her own room, and her parents were, you know, right across the hall. So mom and dad came in the first night she was sleeping alone, and they said prayers with her and gave her a little kiss goodnight, put on a little night light, and they went to bed. A little while later, the father heard some muffled crying from the room across the hall. A little more muffled than that. <laughs> and he goes to his daughter's bedroom and goes to see what the matter is. He says, sweetheart, daddy's here. Everything's fine. Daddy, I got scared, she says. 
Well, a little bit, don't you worry. You know, God is with you. He's watching over you. You're never alone. And the little girl looked up to her papa with her arms outstretched and said, Daddy, I know, but I need to feel the love of someone with skin on. <laughs> love has to be enfleshed. The ancient root for Hebrew, in the Hebrew word for love is, is helpful here. It sheds light on its meaning. Um, one meaning is this. Do you remember the time you've seen the person, the love of your life who takes your breath away? Where you had that moment and you go, <gasps> literally, it's the breathing. It's an act. You're overwhelmed. That's what love is. It's a response. Hebrew also says, along with the Arabic, that the root word for love means to seed, to germinate, to become burdened, alive. It's about as action as you can get. The Greek word for love, which we all know so well, agape, is, is not just a feeling of warmth for one person to another. No, agape is an active, demonstrable, inconvenient, sacrificial expression of care for the other, even those we may not like. And that's the word Jesus used in our story today. Christ-like love is a verb and is expressed through action outwards towards other people and to circumstances in their lives. But what gives love its power? its power? What gives love its power? Unlike what Tina said, it's a broken heart. Friends, a broken heart is the engine, the motivation that puts love into action. Earlier in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 6, Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee with His closest friends, His disciples. He lands on the other shore. And, and we read that when Jesus landed, He saw the large crowd and He had compassion on them because they were a sheep without a shepherd. A literal reading of that would be that when Jesus saw the large crowd, he felt for them so much his stomach hurt. The ancients believed the place where a person feels love and compassion and pity was in a person's gut, in their very bowels. We, on the other hand, see it as in the heart. The heart is where love is felt for another, where compassion is expressed, where pity is provided. So wherever you want to place it, whether in the gut or in the heart, maybe a little of both, love arises out of a physical, visceral action that occurs within our body. 
When Tina Turner's saying, who needs a heart because a heart can be broken, I'm saying, yes, sister, you nailed it on the head. She failed to realize that broken hearts move people to action. When you and I pass a homeless woman sleeping in the car with her child, our hearts should be broken. We shouldn't just look and say, that's a shame. But our broken hearts should motivate us into action to do something about this situation. Maybe not that woman per se, but for the system that's causing this. To work with Hope South Florida to find homes for families. We have to do something about our broken hearts. When you see the news about how the women in Afghanistan, I saw that, saw that this week and it, it just ripped my heart out. Young mothers are selling their infants in order to raise money to feed the rest of their family. If that doesn't break your heart, if that just doesn't make your gut go, I don't know what will. What are we going to do about it? How do we express love to those women? When you witness the ugly outward signs of bigotry towards the aliens and immigrants who pick our food, who are fleeing safety, fleeing for safety, for a better life. When you see the outward signs of bigotry towards people of a different sexual orientation, skin color, religious heritage, our hearts should be broken. Jesus loves these people. He even loves you. Go figure. When we see this bigotry, we should do something about it. Beloved, what do we think God sees when he looks at humanity? The humanity that he created as we are hell-bent on killing each other, hating each other, lying to each other, cheating one another, consuming our resources until they're completely depleted. I'll tell you what God sees. God's heart is broken. God's heart breaks. And that brokenness of God's heart moved God to action by becoming one of us, a man, Jesus, whose heart was broken as well. Beloved, God knows all about broken hearts. Because God's heart has been shattered. God knew that we needed to be loved by someone with skin on. And that's why Jesus came. A broken heart is a catalyst in making love more than a concept. But it makes it an active, engaging, inconvenient, self-sacrificing verb. Beloved, this week, and it is All Saints Eve, I pray the Holy Spirit will haunt everyone in this room.
as you reflect upon what breaks your heart? What breaks your heart in the world? What is energizing you to put skin on love expressed to another human being? We need to be asking ourselves, do I live as though love was a sweet, warm, sentimental concept or is it a verb? Do I just talk about love and give it lip service or am I actually loving others inconveniently, sacrificially, even those people I don't agree with or like. So let it be, beloved. May the Holy Spirit work us over this week. Pray with me. Spirit of God, you, you know what love is. Your heart was broken. And you were relentless in trying to restore that relationship. And you, you put skin on and became a man. Lord, you taught us what love is. Lord, help us to follow in Jesus' steps. Help us to love others. Let us learn to love ourselves as he loved. Come, Holy Spirit. Come. And all of God's people said, Amen.